three zero seven six. Stand up! Stand up! Stand up! Stand up! Friends, we can all listen to the sunny side of sports. Great show, bro. This is sunny side of sports. Right here on the Voice of America. Voice of America! Sporty greetings to all our Voice of America listeners. This is VOA's Sonny Young in Washington. Welcome to the February 23rd edition of the Sunny Side of Sports. Grand Prix motorcycle racing is a sport I've rarely, if ever, covered on the Sunny Side of Sports. But this evening, we rev our engines to bring you the story of the South African Brad Binder who's been racing motorcycles for almost 20 years. Bender is now regarded as one of the top MotoGP riders in the world, as we hear now from Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Brad Bender started out racing go-karts on the tracks of South Africa as an eight-year-old in 2003. But he soon found four wheels to be boring and just two years later, he began racing motorcycles. Competing against kids much older than him, Binder won title after title in the 50cc, 125cc and 150cc categories. In 2008, at the age of 14, he made his international debut in Britain. Binder never managed to win an amateur championship mostly because he crashed relatively often because of his overly aggressive racing style at the time. He turned professional in 2015, winning the Moto3 World Championship a year later. During that championship, Binder delivered a performance that motorcycle racing experts have described as one of the greatest comebacks in the history of the sport. With less than half of the race in Jerez, Spain, remaining, Binder was in 35th position, stone last. But he fought his way up the field, passing the riders in the first three positions to claim victory on the final lap. It came as no surprise when the KTM team, based in Austria, asked the South African to make the step up to MotoGP on one of its bikes for the 2020 season. Binder made an almost immediate impression in the third round in Brno, Czech Republic. But it's coming, and it's coming now. Up the inside he goes. The rookie, Brad Binder, on the Red Bull KTM, leads a Grand Prix here in Brno. Let that sink in. Binder became the first rookie to win a Grand Prix since the legendary Marc Marquez, who did it in 2013. You beauty! A blazing victory for Binder! A new star is born! You have never seen anything like it in your life! What a ride! What a race! What a performance by the South African... Binder ended a creditable 11th in his first championship season. He ended 6th in both the 2021 and 2022 seasons. Binder acknowledges that his old demon of driving too aggressively has hampered his chances of winning the championship so far. He told the media after a recent practice at Johannesburg's Kyalami track that he's ready to make a serious attempt at the championship in 2023. I've had probably one of the best Decembers and beginning of January that I ever have. 
for my fitness testing and stuff and my numbers are better than I've ever had. So, you know, what I've been doing has been working for me and I'm really excited to get started. I expect to be stronger. We've got a bit of work to do, but I'm confident I can definitely improve my finish from last season. Binder started the 2022 season with a bang, ending second at the Qatar Grand Prix. Throughout the year, he finished in the top 10 consistently, including another second place at the Japanese Grand Prix. This is his fourth year with the KTM MotoGP team. It's amazing to be part of a company for that amount of time. You know, it's most of my career coming from Moto3 to MotoGP. So, um, you know, I can't thank the guys at KTM enough. It's an amazing opportunity for me and I know I can give them the results they deserve. In 2021, Binder achieved one of his best results, winning the Austrian Grand Prix in torrential rain. A first ever win for KTM at its home ground of the Red Bull Ring in the city of Spielberg. I'd won their Moto2 and it was a special day for me. So, well, I could only imagine how cool it would have been and to actually get it done was amazing. It was an amazing feeling to be at the home of Red Bull and KTM and uh, to cross the line first was so cool. This season, says Binder, he aims to ride better during qualifying rounds. In the racing side, I always seem to find something extra on a Sunday, especially for the race. It's something I always try and keep in my back pocket, but it would definitely be great to try and qualify a little bit further up the grid more He says the KTM bike he'll be riding in 2023 is more powerful than it's ever been. I think this season's going to really help us to make that next step. And hopefully it comes sooner rather than later. You know, we're all here to win. We're all here to fight up front. That's what I want to do. I'm not happy when I'm racing around in 5th and 10th every weekend. Whether he wins championships or not, says Binder, he feels blessed. When I arrive at the track, it's never felt like I'm going to work. <laughs> you know, I don't think it could feel like you're going to work racing a bike for a living. Binder's a sportsman who prides himself on always being grounded. This year, he hopes his feet are planted more firmly than ever on the podiums of the world's great racetracks. For the sunny side of sports, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Thanks, Darren. Still with African Motorsport, Darren reports South Africa's scenic city of Cape Town will host the continent's first ever Formula One e-championship for electric cars on Saturday, February 25th. South African businessman and motorsport enthusiast Ian Banner has been fighting to bring an E-Prix to Cape Town since he saw the very first Formula E race in Beijing, China in 2014. Well, just imagine this. You are competing with the world. There's many, many cities in the world that are looking to put this on. It's an expensive endeavor. You need a street circuit that's got to be prepared. We have the city of Cape Town who very graciously believed in us and have built the track. You've got all sorts of capex required around barriers and fences and tech pro infrastructure. That's before you've even started getting towards the race. Ian Banner says the Cape Town E-Pre race will take the drivers around the Cape Town Stadium near the ocean and at the foot of Table Mountain. It's 2.88 kilometers in length. I've been over it many times recently and it showcases the beauty of the mother city which in turn 
showcases Africa and South Africa in a beautiful way to the world. Banner emphasizes that Saturday's EPRI race is not a one-off event. And remember, we're not doing this for one year. We're doing this for the next 10, I think, 20 or 30 years. This needs to be a permanent feature. We need to bring people back into South Africa travel-wise after COVID. They need to come and ex experience this beautiful country. We have so much to offer by the way of hospitality and restaurants and, and the like, the wine farms, the ocean, the mountains. So it's a global destination. It's an international destination that people would love to come and be part of. And this is just another of those exciting properties that's going to help. That's Ian Banner waving the banner for Cape Town ahead of Saturday's Formula One E-Championship for electric cars. I'm VOA Sonny Young in Washington, and you're listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Hi, this is Larry London, the host of VOA's Border Crossings, where we feature music and interviews along with your favorite artists from around the world. Tune in and interact live with us here in Washington, D.C. Hello, Shirin. Hello, Larry. How are you? Good. How are you tonight? Border Crossings comes to you Monday through Friday at 1500 UTC GMT. Thanks, Larry. That's Larry London, a man who's always ready to cross musical borders. I encourage our sunny side of sports listeners to follow me on Facebook and Twitter. My Facebook address is facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny. Once again, that address, facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny. And my Twitter handle is at VOA Sunny Sports. Once again, my Twitter handle, at VOA Sunny Sports. This is the voice of America. Washington, D.C. In African boxing, three top Ghanaian prize fighters, Richard Comey, Isaac Dogbe and Emmanuel Tago are getting ready for upcoming bouts. Our reigning prince of pugilistics, Namdi Hollywood Moeta, says Comey will fight next month in California. Sonny, homeboy from Accra, Ghana, Richard Comey, former world champion, is in for a very tough, super lightweight fight. March 2015, Fresno, California, right here. Uh, he's fighting a guy by the name Jose Ramirez, an elite fighter, a big crowd puller. Uh, he fills up his uh, big arenas in his hometown, which means the only way Richard Comey can win this fight is by knocking out Joe Jose Ramirez in his hometown, March 25th. Sonny, mind you, this fight is going to be on a Saturday night, prime time, on ESPN. So we are talking about millions and millions of eyeballs around the globe. So Richard Comey must put on a show, must score a knockout, because if the fight is close, you know how it goes. The hometown fighter will win it. The boxing commission will do the, um, what we call Wayo and Mago Mago, and they give it to Jose Ramirez. So Richard Comey must come in with a sick and destroyed mentality, take this fight to Jose Ramirez, and then stop him. Like Richard Comey, fellow Ghanaian Isaac Dogbe will fight next here in the USA. 
Dogbe, nicknamed Royal Storm, will take on the Cuban, Robisi Ramirez, on April 1st at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Tulsa, Oklahoma. How's this one shaping up, Namdi? Sonny, Royal Storm is in for a world title, WBO featherweight title, against a very tough, tough, tough Cuban. This is just not any Cuban. This is a two-time gold medalist, Olympic gold medalist in Robaisi Ramirez. Uh, this fight, it's a very tough fight. Uh, but mind you, Robaisi came here for his first pro bout and he lost. He's, a, he's got a record of 11-1 and one with seven KOs. Whereas you look at Royal Storm, Isaac Dogbe, 24-2 and two with 15 big knockouts. Uh, this fight is on a neutral ground, so there's no question of uh, home crowd and all that stuff. It's for the WBO featherweight title. If homeboy from Ghana wins this one, he makes him a two-time world champion, which I believe he can do. But the Cuban is not just any Cuban. He's a two-time Olympian, gold medalist, and he comes to fight, and he's younger than the Bay. Expect a battle on this one on ESPN again on Saturday night. Global, worldwide, African Royal Storm doing his thing. Another Ghanaian hoping to do his thing in the boxing ring is the game boy, Emmanuel Tago. Talk to us, Namdi. Who's next for game boy? Sonny, game boy from Accra is <laughs> in tough, man. This is another big fight on ESPN undercard big world title fight. Um, he's fighting Kishon Davis. Kishon Davis is an Olympian, Olympic silver medalist, seven and zero with five knockouts. The promoter is behind him. The boxing commission is behind him. Game boy has to bring his game. If not, uh, this fight is happening at the Prudential Center in Newark, New Jersey. The only way Game Boy can win this again is by knockout, by backing this kid up, showing him what uh, what the big boys can handle. And I think uh, this fight here, if Game Boy can pull a big upset, then Game Boy is back in the money game. So Kishon Davis against Game Boy. Kishon Davis is not just a nobody. It's not an easy fight. It's very tough. So three, three Africans in the ring, and they're all on TV on a Saturday night on ESPN. Millions of fight fans around the globe. We'll see our boys in action. Uh, we look for victory because victory would put them in the pole position. And speaking of the pole position, Namdi, I understand one of your fighters is in the pole position. <laughs> the pole position indeed. Definitely pole position. Lekon Loko Timo Ibi from Abeokuta, Ogun State, Nigeria. My boy. 7-0 and oh with 7 knockouts. His next fight is in Lagos, Nigeria. I'm really, really glad, Sonny, because, you know, I'm, I've been talking the fight game. I'm in the game. It's nice to really have one at home. My former champions were Prince Mohammed of Ghana, young Dick Tiger of Nigeria. But now that I have a young, hungry fighter from Abel Kuta, Ogun State, Leko Moibi, his next fight is March 4th in Lagos, Nigeria. It's a puncher, light heavyweight, just fights like uh, marvelous Marvin Hagler. So look out for Loco T from Abelkuta, Ogun State, Nigeria. My boy, and uh, he's doing it. The boy is doing it.
Thanks, Namdi. That's Namdi Hollywood Moeta, our reigning prince of pugilistics. This is Sonic Idol Sports. <laughs> Hello, this is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Thanks, Heather. I'm VOA's Sonny Young in Washington. And you're listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. The U.S. women's national soccer team, which will be bidding for an unprecedented third consecutive world title later this year, beat Brazil Wednesday night 2-1 near Dallas, Texas, to lift the She Believes Cup trophy. Alex Morgan and Mallory Swanson scored for the USA. Morgan scored a spectacular goal on the final touch of the first half. Swanson drew three Brazilian defenders to the penalty area before her shot was blocked. Morgan collected the rebound beyond the box and curled a 21-meter shot beyond goalkeeper Lorena's reach and inside the left post. It was Alex Morgan's 121st goal in 204 international appearances for the USA. And Mallory Swanson continued her recent scoring tear. Mallory scored both goals for the American women in their 2-0 win over Canada in their She Believes Cup opener. And Swanson also had the goal for the USA in their next She Believes Cup match, a 1-0 win over Japan. Meanwhile, substitute Lyudmila scored a late 90th-minute goal for Brazil. Final score from Texas, USA women 2, Brazil 1. The American women are seeking to become the first men's or women's team ever to win three consecutive world titles. This also marks the fourth consecutive time the USA has won the She Believes Cup competition. In Wednesday's first She Believes Cup match, Japan ended a four-game scoreless streak by beating Canada 3-0. The USA won all three of its matches and topped the She Believes Cup table with the maximum nine points. Japan... Brazil and Canada each won one match and lost two, so they all finished with three points. The USA's head coach, Vlatko Andonovsky, said his team enjoys winning the She Believes Cup, but it's also about preparation for the FIFA Women's World Cup, which kicks off July 20th in Australia and New Zealand. Coach Andonovsky 
also comments on his team's missed scoring opportunities against Brazil on Wednesday night. So first, it's not a problem that we create chances. I'm very happy that we're creating chances. And the fact that we're doing it uh, in a manner that is uh, very creative uh, with, uh, with uh, some, uh, some good plays uh, uh, makes me happy and tells me that we're moving in the right direction. Now, the fact that we're not finishing and, uh, is, uh, a, is, uh, is not disappointing, but, uh, but uh, it's something that we definitely have to address. But uh, in the same time, I want to say... The players will get those chances. I, I know they'll score those chances uh, because if you if you think about it, for most of this group, this is off season, and uh, once they go back into their markets uh, and uh, once they uh, they start having trainings on a regular basis, games on a regular basis, compete against good players, uh, they're gonna get their feeling back. They're gonna refine their touch, and uh, those uh, final touches uh, uh, will not be a problem. And I'm I'm pretty confident. I'm confident uh, and positive about it. A confident Vlatko Andonovsky, the head coach of the U.S. women's national soccer team. Meanwhile, the national women's teams from Cameroon and Senegal both have come up short in their bid to qualify for the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. Haiti beat Senegal 4-0 on February 18th in an inter-confederation playoff match in Auckland. New Zealand. The Haitian women went on to beat Chile Wednesday 2-1 to book their debut place at the Women's World Cup. And Cameroon beat Thailand 2-0 on February 18th in Hamilton, New Zealand. The Cameroonian women then had to beat Portugal on Wednesday, but the Portuguese prevailed by a score of 2-1. Portugal also will be making its debut at the Women's World Cup. So with the elimination of Cameroon and Senegal, the African teams are now set for the Women's World Cup. Morocco, Nigeria, South Africa, and Zambia will be representing Africa. Morocco and Zambia will both be making their debuts at the premier event in women's football. Sporty greetings. This is Memory Malisawa, Major Officer of Copa Queens of Zambia. You are listening to the sunny side of sports on The Voice of America. Around the clock, The Voice of America keeps you in touch with the latest news. Tune in at the top of every hour, every day of the week, for the five-minute VOA newscast. We bring you reports from our correspondents and interviews with newsmakers from around the world. Give us five minutes, and we'll give you the world. VOA, your trusted source for news and information. U.S. men's college basketball. And here's the AP's Tom Merriam. With the NBA still on for the All-Star break, college basketball took center court Wednesday. The nation's top two ranked teams were both in action and both won, though in very different ways. Top-ranked Houston played like a number one team routing Tulane. Here's AP's Adam Spolane with the details. Marcus Sasser scored 22 points as top-ranked Houston improved to 26-2 with an 89-59 win over Tulane. Sasser shot 6 of 11 from the field and added 5 rebounds and 6 assists. I still feel like we haven't reached our ceiling, so that's always, you know, a positive heading into March. Um, we're going to be playing our best basketball in March. Second-ranked Alabama, however, needed overtime to squeeze past South Carolina 78-76. 
Brandon Miller scored 41 points, the high for a freshman in the NCAA this year, amid the backdrop of a police report that linked him to a fatal shooting near the Alabama campus last month. Crimson Tide coach Nate Oates. Not surprised. I mean, 41 points, don't want to say you expect that, but not surprised he came ready to play and played well tonight. Sixth-ranked Virginia was soundly beaten 63-48 by a Boston College team with a losing record. And in a matchup of ranked Big East teams, number 18 Connecticut cut down number 20 Providence 87-69. I'm Tom Merriam. Thanks, Tom. The American owners of Manchester United, the Glazer family, have received bids for the prestigious English Premier League football club as the mid-February takeover deadline has been extended. VOA's Gwen Uten has more on the possible sale of Man U. Sporty greetings, Gwen! Sporty greetings, Sonny. Manchester United's current owners are the six children of late American businessman Malcolm Glazer, who became the majority shareholder of the Premier League Giants in 2005. Last November, the Glazer family put United up for sale drawing to a close a nearly two decades long investment in one of the richest and most widely supported clubs in football. The Glazers are reportedly seeking a world record selling price of at least $6 billion and two confirmed offers are on the table. One from British billionaire Sir Jim Ratcliffe and the other made by Qatari banker Sheikh Jassim bin Hamad Thani, who says he's prepared to increase his bid to to seal the deal. News of United's impending takeover is the latest example of English football as an increasingly lucrative business proposition for global investors. Last May, Chelsea were sold for $5.4 billion to American businessman Todd Bowley. And football finance expert Neil Joyce says that sale helped to set the bar even higher on the value of elite clubs. Football is big, big business from an investment standpoint. There's been traditional ownership that's been more ego-driven or family-driven over the years. Now, with all the investment that's come into the Premier League in the more recent futures, so the likes of PIF acquiring Newcastle, Todd Bowley and his consortium buying Chelsea, they kind of set the threshold for what football clubs are worth. You then look at the traditional valuations of the NBA franchises going for anything between three and a half billion to four billion in some cases. And the bar's been set in terms of value of sports teams and football teams in particular as brands. Joyce is the co-founder and CEO of the CLV Group, a data company that recently published a report that outlines how investing in football has become big business. The Glazers could generate a return of at least six times their investment in United. And Joyce says that gives the siblings plenty of incentive to sell the club. If you look at it from an investment perspective purely on this side of things, so traditionally private equity companies invest into businesses with the belief that they can generate anywhere between two times to four times return on capital. If you look at the example of where Manchester United is likely to be sold for, the Glazers are likely to generate anywhere between six to eight times return on their initial capital, even allowing for the interest payments, dividends, and also other shareholders involved there. So football is starting to show the benchmark about what could be possible. 
Manchester United have won a record 20 Premier League titles, lifted three Champions League trophies, and remain one of the world's most popular and marketable football clubs. And despite struggles to maintain form on the pitch in recent years, United have experienced a resurgence in the new campaign. They're currently third in the Premier League and strong contenders in the race for the title. Their latest league victory took place last Sunday when they defeated Leicester City 3-0. And ahead of the match, manager Eric Ten Hag told reporters he's not distracted by the prospect of a club takeover. His focus is on winning games. Of course, we are, we are committed, but we are focusing on football, on training, and our way of play, on games. Uh, and that is what we are focusing and We really enjoy it in the moment with, uh, in togetherness, and it's um, enjoyable to work. And yeah, we are focusing on, on games and we are four leagues. So others in the clubs have, have, uh, will have to take decisions, uh, give efforts in the process, but it's not up to us. On Thursday, Ten Hag's side hoped to advance to the round of 16 in the Europa League. United drew 2-2 with Barcelona in the first leg of the knockout round playoff last week. Now the stage is set for a thrilling second leg return at Old Trafford. And that is all from me, Sonny. Back over to you. Thanks, Gwen. That's my VOA colleague, Gwen Uten. And that wraps up the February 23rd edition of the show. Thank you for tuning in. I get it. I'm VOA Sunny Young in Washington. And that's the sunny side of sports.